Well, welcome to this episode of On the Mic with Mike. Uh, today, we're here at the University of Montreal, and we're gonna have a conversation with uh, Dr. Patricia Conrad, who's a psychologist who's doing some absolutely fascinating work, um, particularly with adolescents and developing brain, thinking about the issues of uh, drug use, uh, how that impacts on the brain. So this is be excellent. I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you. Why don't you join me as we head on in? So Patricia, welcome to this edition of On the Mic with Mike. Uh, we're really looking to have a conversation with you. I mean, you've got a fascinating research career going on. We want to explore a bit of that, and then we'll go past that a bit too as well. So can you just tell us, what is, what is it that you do in your research? Sure. So I'm, I'm a clinical psychologist by training. I'm a professor of psychiatry at University of Montreal, and I um, study uh, neurobiologic risk factors for um, mental health concerns and addiction. Okay. Uh, but I also translate what we learn about risk to novel early intervention prevention strategies. Okay. So as a psychologist, how do you do that translation? How does that work for you? Right. So um, sometimes what we come to understand about risk can, can be addressed using uh, intervention treatment strategies that already exist, okay. but they are delivered in a more targeted or selective way. Um, and other times it involves really experimenting, developing a, a novel intervention, um, something very new that's based on neuropsychology or you know, a different form of psychosocial intervention. And it could also be uh, neuromodulation, for example. So really developing something new and then right. testing that from, from beginning right up until... Right. You know. So if I understand correctly from what I've read about your work and such, mm -hmm. is that... You're really interested in sort of the developing brains, so well, sort of an adolescent going through to early adulthood. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So how do you? So I mean, the background of all of this is the brain is not fully set and ready to go until your mid twenties, right? That's in terms right. of myelination yeah. and all that. So how do you how do you work with something that is like a brain evolving? That, that's right. Yeah. That isn't quite ready. Right. So I mean, it, the thing is, it involves different. Uh, designs, research designs. So, for example, in a treatment study, you would just you would you would observe whether whether the, the problem goes away or, right. or reduces in some way. Well, when you're looking at the effect of a, a preventative intervention, you have to you have to use a very different design. You have to follow people for longer periods of time. You're, usually, your your trials end up being much bigger. You always need a control condition because in order to know that something didn't happen that was supposed to happen. Okay. You have to have a you have to have a, a, a control condition. So so sometimes the methodology is different. The other thing you have to do is you have to make sure your your design captures what's developing right. over time. Right. So it's sensitive to um, developmental changes, for right. example. And so I mean I mean a lot of discussion, certainly in my circles, right, sort of centers around there's a male female difference, right, in terms of development as adolescents go through teenage years and such. And that's not just simply a socioeconomic or environment. There's yeah. truly an underlying difference. Right. And it, and it could it could be qualitatively different, right. but it could also be differences in pace okay. or the course of, of changes. So it could be that right. one one gender or sex goes through a process earlier or later right. than the other, um, or they just don't go through that process at all. So there, there are a number of different okay. 
important differences, and so right? So that, that contributes to the size of the study you need to do because that's a variable as well? Uh, uh, yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely okay. would contribute to the size. Um, uh, I, I think more what really contributes to the size is the fact that I study um, conditions that are they're considered um, common um you know, psychiatric conditions that, um, that, you know, that have a, a certain common prevalence. Right. Um, so as we know, right, I mean, at least one in three people, uh, one in three Canadians will experience uh, some kind of mental health concern in right. their lifetime, if not more. Um, but um, when you're trying to prevent these more rare occurrences like uh, a certain form of drug misuse right. or suicide; uh, those are those are more rare. So you need much larger studies in order to demonstrate that you can prevent a very right. rare occurrence, okay. particularly if they're difficult to predict. Right. So we have a new variable, right, that's been introduced into the behavior of our teenagers and growing forward, right? So that would be the cannabis story, mm-hmm. right? and vaping, and vaping, right? That's so we'll come to vaping in a second, yeah. 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 But even you know on the yeah. on the cannabis side of the equation, right? So we know that. At least the studies that I've seen would suggest, you know, Canadians, we have the youngest median age of onset mm-hmm. of first use, right? We have some of the purest product that's out there, and we have availability <laughs> now for it. Um, and so all of that's, that's a whole new variable that at least, at least is declared, right? How is that affecting your work? Um, so how is it affecting my work? It's, it's, it's definitely... Um, put, uh, uh, you know, my work into the spotlight mm. and many people are interested in, in the research I do. I, by the way, that the, the research I do is um, in the context of brain and um, neuropsychological development right. and social development. What is the impact of early onset cannabis use, right. um, alcohol use, tobacco use on the developing brain? That's what I study. And um you know, the, the approach that I take is we, we compare the effects of different drugs as well. Right. So we, 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 um, we put them to the same test. Right. Um, and um, what we're finding, and, and it was, it's actually quite surprising, is what we're finding is that cannabis is, is quite important in terms of how it affects um, brain development and right. neuropsychological development and, and um, mental health. Right. And, Positively you know, or negatively? Um, it, negatively, right. and it's a little surprising because the the public health profile, you know, the harm profile of alcohol versus cannabis is uh, is very different. And alcohol is a very harmful drug for mm-hmm. for society, right? Because it is related to accidents and um, a number of health concerns. Um, but um, for the adolescent developing brain, if you're just focusing mm-hmm. on that aspect. Yep. Um, some of our recent studies are suggesting that cannabis is is actually more harmful. So obviously, it depends on how you look at it, right? right? Depends on what outcomes right. you're looking at. But from the perspective of the developing brain, right. um, cannabis has a has a, a profile that really requires a lot more research. Right. So I know. I mean, you know, I have colleagues working. So I, I work in the neurobiology, neurodegenerative yeah. diseases side of the equation. Um, and I, I look at it more from the side of dementia so much later on, yeah. of course. Yeah. But there's a lot of work looking Where at... Alcohol has plays a significant role. Yeah. And then also, you know, if you take a, a population of study animals, so you're looking at rats, for instance, and you give them cannabinoids right, over a period of time, you do end up with behavioral changes. Uh, or you get anxiety, you get, um, you get depression that can be measured mm-hmm. and all those. And, and for many of us, we often you know, sit and look and say, you know, we... 
truly one out of three figure, you know, as you're describing it, of a mental health uh, event of some sort in their lifetime, if not more than all of that. And yet, is it more disproportionate now in the younger age population? And, and I look at that particularly mm-hmm. as late teenagers getting into 20s. And are we starting to see, uh, it's like looking at the train wreck and saying, yeah, yeah that's the cause. But is it, you know, it's, it And it's, it, it's very difficult because the, you know, the changes in drug use patterns right. and have happened over the course of 10 to 15 years in North America, right? right. So attributing those changes to mental health outcomes is, is, is a difficult thing. What is clear is in North America, anxiety and depression rates are going up in young people, right? right. Okay. Um, so, um, uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's just difficult to make, yeah, 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 it's, yeah. it's difficult to do that. But we are, we are doing studies right now where we are trying to estimate causal relationships between substance use and, and mental health outcomes and uh, neurodevelopmental outcomes. And this is by, by using very large cohort studies with multiple repeated assessments so that you can actually pick up, you know, a potential effect of um, the onset of the substance use throughout the course of development. And so if you, if you kind of place yourself five years from now, maybe 10 years from now, right, with all of this so where do you want to see it having an impact? Like, how does this translate for you? I want to see uh, my research having an impact on the interventions and the policies that are available to the population that will protect them right. from substances of abuse. So, you know, it's become clear uh, to me and I think to most Canadians that criminalizing policies are not helpful as a way to regulate um uh, uh, substance use and substance related harms. But that's not to say that we don't need regulatory policies. Right. And in fact, I believe my understanding of the literature is that the, the more the, uh, the, the, um, a population or a, a society puts limits on how accessible substances of abuse are, the more they're protected. Right. Um, so, Somewhere between, you know, decriminalizing and fully unregulated legalization, we need a whole bunch of evidence-based policies and um, we need to understand those. But we also need intervention programs that are going to protect people who might be vulnerable to misuse substances or experience harm from substances through genetic processes, familial processes, individual personal processes um, or cultural factors. Right. So how did you get into all of this? I mean, it's a, not only yeah. is it a fascinating area. It's a fascinating right? area. Yeah. It is, yeah. But it's yeah. got to—I mean, it's got to be all-consuming, right? To be thinking about. So, yeah. how did you come down this pathway? Um, I think I remember taking my first psychology course as a in, in junior college, which we call CEGEP in yes. uh, in okay. Quebec. And yeah, I was, I was I was a pretty good student, but you know, once I was exposed to research on the brain i just became absolutely fascinated and much more motivated okay because there is, I mean, yeah. from a psychology training right there's there's a break point at which you decide you're going to be purely in, as a clinical psychologist and right or you're going to actually also take on a major research bent and that's an active decision well, yes and, and i mean in canada though we're, we're i think we more than many other countries we preserve the clinician scientist model in right. psychology so most PhD clinical psychologists in Canada are still trained through um, a thesis-based right. uh, PhD. Um, and and I still believe that's extremely important because there's so much that we have right. 
we, we still need to understand and learn about the brain and about the interventions that are offered through, right. through clinical psychology. So I believe that anyone, any, any practitioner uh, of psychology should still be reading literature, right. evaluating the outcomes of the interventions that they're offering. Um, and I, I think you would agree that that should be the case for all health sciences. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Right. So, but then to end up in this particular field... Right. Yeah. Looking at addiction management, looking at the, how did you end up there? Um, it was through, it was through, uh, the honors program at McGill university. Okay. Yeah. So as an undergrad in the honors program, you had to, you had to do a, a research study in your second year. And I went around to the different professors in the departments doing research. And as you know, the psychology program at McGill is yeah, really strong, fascinating research. But um, I, uh, I, I sat down and, and heard and you know, studied a little bit about um, what Bob Peel was doing and okay. uh, Robert Peel. And he, he is, is a, an addiction researcher okay. at, at McGill. And, and I just found, I found the work fascinating. I, um, um, and started there and, and then have just continued from that point. Um, and I just find, you know, what's, what's fascinating about addiction research is that you can study it at the cellular level. You can, right. you can study at the molecular level. You can study it at a whole brain systems level, the individual level, the societal level. It's, n- it's never dull. Okay. So yeah. if you go back, right, a lot of, a lot of people I talk to, are, how did you get into all of this? Yeah. There's, there's almost, you can back even further than that when, you know, when they were younger, right? There was something in the life where there was a mentor or there was somebody that was, was that it or? Was was there a mentor? Well, um, my mother is a psychologist and so she's definitely had an impact on me. So when, when, um, when we were, were students, uh, she went back to school and just, plugged away at it until the point where she got right through to, uh, to, uh, completing her PhD. Okay. So that's definitely had an influence on me. The um, same area of psychology or did she? Different area, okay. different area, but she, okay. she, 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 she uh, trained as a clinical psychologist, still okay. practicing okay. this day. Um, my father is, was an educator and, uh, so obviously had an influence on probably me going into academia right. and, uh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, and one of the other things we, you know, kind of explore a little bit is this, because this is our, this is our life in Tide Science. And, and, you know, obviously we love it. You clearly love what you're doing. What do you do when you're not doing this? Like, is there something else? I'm um, attending to my family for the most part. Okay. Uh, uh, I have two children. And um, what else do I do? I, um, I focus on my physical health. Okay. I dance. Every okay. chance I, I, every free moment I have. Okay. And, uh, any yeah, particular just time? any, any particular time. Yes. Oh, yep. okay. yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, just try to maintain a, a healthy okay. life, maintain a good, um, you know, support right. network. Fair enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And do you have two children now? I do. How old? Yeah. Um, at the moment they're 11 and 14. Okay. Yeah. So are in are either of them starting to say, gee, well, I wouldn't mind what, do what do you do? <laughs> yeah, what do you do? Can you explain it? And yeah. are they starting to tweak to an interest? Um, 
Uh, absolutely, yeah. So, so they're out, they're always intrigued, and they I, I think they vacillate between being interested in my husband's career choices and my career okay. choices. So, yeah. What does your husband do? Um, right now, he he has uh, he's uh, the, started a startup. Okay, so he right. he uh, kind of runs a startup in so Montreal. It's a different world. Very different world. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. But. Um, Still a lot of overlap because um, we both deal with big data. Right. Okay. Uh, digital technology is, you know, pretty universal to, to science and right. business. Um, managing large teams, right? Okay. Uh, staying on track with projects and timelines. Right. Uh, right? Yeah. So when yeah. you're, you know, sort of, it's kind of in a very similar sort of thread um, of ideas, but um, you know, this concept of mentoring, right? Somebody. Yeah. But when you're talking to students, right, particularly young students coming through, who are looking for advice or thinking about, what do you advise to them? Yeah. yeah so I, did, I mean, I didn't. I didn't mention that. Um, I would say one a very important mentor for me was um, a, 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 a student, a couple of graduate students who were in the same uh, uh, lab that where okay. I began studying. Who. I, I continue to collaborate with okay. today, and so you know, and that was very important. So, what would I say to a, a student is is really make use of and find a, a cohort of students who yeah. are uh, either at the same level of study, and and you know, make sure that you're interacting with your peers or using that network, but that you're also finding someone who's a couple of, of years ahead of you right. who um, who can also kind of help guide you through some of the decision making, um, sh- sharing information and so on. And that's also something that I often try to create within my team, within my research center, in our department is making sure you're focusing on the cohort effect right. because it's extremely important, right? Yeah. It's interesting yeah. you say that because, you know, one of the things, you know, when I'm, either when I'm teaching about mentorship or when I'm talking to students or other investigators about it, is this sort of almost um, inadvertent mentor, Right. So there's the ones that are active mentors that you seek out or take an interest in you and spend some time uh, for it. But there's also this sort of inadvertent incidental mentor, colleagues, yeah. friends who you're Peers, learn. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. That you'll learn something from as you go through. Yeah. And, and, you know, until you've been there and actually had a chance to experience that, it can be really, what are you talking about? Right. That for it. Yeah. Yeah. And there are ways as a, as, as a supervisor or as a leader to, to help nurture you know, yeah. the, the, that yeah. uh, without being the direct mentor. So, because yeah. it leads to, I mean, and I, I may be entirely wrong on the observation, mm-hmm. right, from my forward, but, you know, you get a sense right now that, particularly at the undergraduate level, there's more of a acuity to, I've, I've got to succeed or I have to move forward to the next level. Yeah. And so that sense of community um, isn't quite there, or I get the sense that it's not as strong. And mm-hmm. I worry about it as we move into the graduate uh, so, mm-hmm. right, for that. so, so for those of us, right, who are, who are training or teaching, do you have tricks or tools that you use to try and encourage that mentorship? Or well, that yeah, I mean, I think that's where the research laboratory really uh, does yeah, have right. a different culture, right? Um, yeah. um, so maybe 
at the undergraduate level, um, there, there is quite a bit of competitiveness and, and some anonymity in some of the larger universities. Right. But once students get involved in a, in a research lab, and that can happen as, as early as second year university, right? Is, right. It, they, there's, it's a very different experience. It's smaller. It's supportive. They're all working towards a common goal. Right. Uh, they're sharing resources. There's, um, so there's, there's social life, social lives yeah, okay. also yeah. emerge from it. So I, um, I mean, I think that's another um, advantage and, and reason to encourage undergrads to, to get involved in research. It really changes right. your your undergraduate experience, okay. right? Can I ask you a question that's kind of going to make you flip forward a little bit, all right, right. as we go along here? And when I think about some part of the work that I've done has been to look at frontal lobe, frontal disc executive function yeah. and such. And, um, as, as That's part, a lot of the work that I've done too. Well, there, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, when <laughs> yeah. I started, I think I've been around a little bit longer. Theory of mind wasn't even on the mm-hmm. map, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of had this year idea sometimes going mesial frontal sort of uh, behavioral sort of, and um, we really didn't understand the concepts of, of praxis even. So I go back a little bit longer. So in the, in the time period that I've been doing this, I've seen a fascinating evolution of our ability to understand how the frontal lobes are function mm-hmm. and their their contribution to the essence of an individual, right? And I would never have predicted that, right? Nor would I have predicted mm-hmm. some of the imaging correlates as we start to think about neural networks, right? And how they tie it together. So you're in a different plane right now, right? Um, uh, for that, in the sense that that's all on your plate and all the imaging capacity that we've got and the ability to interrogate these regions of the brain. Mm-hmm. But what would surprise you if we were going to go five to ten years from now? Are there things that we don't know about how the brain functions that if you could just spend infinite amount of time, that's where you would delve because it's going to tell us something we don't know. Do you right. think about that? What we don't thinking yeah, we don't about know what we don't know. What, what, However, what we don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it, I think that I think that what one thing that's happening today is that we're redefining um, psychiat- how we how we understand and measure psychiatric conditions, right? right. And there, there, there are the psychiatric and the traditional classification system and ways in which we refer to psychiatric conditions, such as major depression, anxiety right. disorders, or psychosis, and more and more people are coming to to agree that they those might exist along a continuum. So you might you, um, it's it's not just that you have it or you don't, but it, that people can experience some of these symptoms without harm and without need for clinical intervention. But that it's only after a certain point that you. Um, but we're also learning that there's there are other um, there are other kind of dimensions that impact on all psychiatric conditions um, so that there are, there's vulnerability to psychological problems, psychiatric conditions that, that isn't specific to one right, particular right. disorder or another. And um, as you can imagine, you know, th- this hierarchical way of understanding executive functions, mm-hmm. cognitive processes, uh, you know, behavior, psychiatric conditions, psychopathology risk. So just beginning to understand things from a hierarchical perspective um, 
it will, will really change the way we think about things because it's it's really forcing us to to not think in you know just in a linear way or to think that to think about categories, but to think about multiple interacting uh, dimensions processes that are also structured in a hierarchical way. Um, and so I think that, you know, how do human beings, how can we understand such complexity? Right. How do we move forward there? Right. And so we're going to need systems, that, ways of talking, ways of interacting, ways of being able to understand things that are so complex, because that's the only way that we're going to be able to, um, right. to truly understand What's going on in here? Doesn't sound like the excitement's <laughs> done for you yet. No, <laughs> at all. Well, this, this has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. Oh, I do too. Um, thank you for having me. I probably could spend another hour or two having a conversation around this topic, but thank you very much. That's it for another episode of On the Mic with Mike. Uh, thank you, Patricia, for joining for this, and we'll see you again soon. Take care. <laughs>